Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Molecule is not like any other mattress in a box. Their sleep scientists literally created the world's most perfect mattress. It has six times the airflow of my old mattress, so it keeps me cool all night. It has zone reflex layers that adjust with me in all my weird sleep positions. And it's antimicrobial. And if Russell Wilson sleeps on a molecule and calls it his best sleep ever, who am I to argue? Go to onmolecule.com and save 20% with promo code UNEXPLAINED. Again, save 20% with promo code UNEXPLAINED at onmolecule.com. Like all the places we give names to, the town of Todmorden, located in the upper Calder Valley in the north of England, was conjured into being. Once non-existent, until one day it was, an intangible boundary line thrown out over the land, becoming solid and fixed within the minds of anyone willing to participate in this fiction. Yet ultimately, it is as loose as the breeze, destined like everything ever given a name, to one day be erased. And what even is a fixed point on a planet that spins unceasingly on an axis, that orbits the sun, that cycles the Milky Way, a galaxy that in turn is hurtling through space toward the Andromeda galaxy, its nearest neighbour? In truth, nothing is ever truly fixed. Nothing is permanent. Because if there is one universal constant, it is change. A fact easily demonstrated by how a place and our associations with it will evolve over time. Take the town of Todmorden itself, once a soot-stained dynamo of the Industrial Revolution at the heart of the British cotton industry. Today, it stands as a picturesque and progressive jewel in the thick of the Yorkshire countryside, at the heart of a weird and vibrant local music scene. Once in a while, however, Something so extraordinary occurs that, if not able to resolve impermanence completely, can leave its mark so deeply on a place that it appears destined to shape our impression of it forevermore. For Todmorden, that something 
occurred just over 40 years ago today, it'll be some time before it's forgotten. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. Some claim the name Todmorden originates from two old Saxon words meaning death, Todd and Mort, giving the modern English translation of death, death, wood. Others, however, believe the name has a rather more prosaic, topographic origin, meaning simply Totter's Boundary Valley, being as it is, nestled at the confluence of three valleys of the Pennines, a rupture of mountains and hills that dangles like a crooked spine through the north of England. It was there, not far from Todmorden Town Centre, late in the evening of June 10th, 1980, that a young couple were roused from sleep by a peculiar noise, like a great surge of water moving to and fro, as they described it, that seemed to be coming from somewhere high above their house. Grabbing their jackets, the couple raced to the front door and stepped out cautiously into the cool night air. A thick mist had formed in the sky, from which a light drizzle was now falling, through which they could just about hear that peculiar sound, now moving further and further away. When all was silent once more, the couple turned to head back inside, when suddenly there appeared a soft light from somewhere deep within the mist, pulsating steadily from green to red. The couple watched in quiet awe as the light moved higher and higher, and then completely disappeared from view. It was just approaching 3.45pm the following day, as 33-year-old police officer Alan Godfrey took another drag of his cigarette and gazed out at Todmorden's rain-splattered high street. Though he loved it here, there was little more miserable than being lumbered with street patrol on days like these, when the clouds hung dark and low, and all colour seemed leached from the surrounding hills and fields. Then Alan's radio crackled into life. It was a call-out for any officers in the area to make their way to Tomlin's coal yard at the back of Todmorden train station. Alan answered the call, telling them he could be there in ten minutes, then asked what the situation was. A body's been found, came back the blunt reply. Alan's eyes widened. Taking a final drag on the cigarette, he flicked the butt into the street and had just stepped into the rain when a patrol car pulled up fast beside him, much to Alan's relief. PC Malcolm Agley rolled down the window and shouted for Alan to jump in. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. Sign up today and start communicating in less than 48 hours. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. You can also log into your account anytime to send a message to your counsellor. BetterHelp is not a crisis line, nor self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online with a broad range of expertise available. And with BetterHelp's commitment to facilitating great therapeutic matches, 
They make it especially easy and free to change counsellors to help you find the right fit. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and unexplained listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com forward slash unexplained. That's betterhelp.com forward slash unexplained. Join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. It was still raining as they made their way up the long dirt track behind the station toward the yard, pulling into it at just after 4pm. It was hard to miss the ambulance parked up in the centre, sitting stark and white against the black and grey of the yard. Stepping out of the car, Alan and Malcolm put on their hats and made their way toward the three men sheltering under the coal hopper in the middle of the yard next to which was a large pile of anthracite coal, roughly 15 feet high, stacked up against a wall of railway sleepers. I think you have a murder, said one of the paramedics glumly. Alan looked about the yard for any sign of the body. It's up there, said another of the men, pointing to the top of the coal heap. The man was Trevor Parker, the yard owner's 25-year-old son, As he went on to explain, he'd seen nothing unusual when he arrived for work at 8am. Having stayed at the yard until 11am, he then left to carry out some checks at the family's other coal yards before returning at 4pm. That was when he saw the body, lying in plain sight at the top of the central coal pile. He'd assumed it was a drunk at first, sleeping off a hangover, but then the horrible realisation had eventually dawned on him. The eeriness of it, amplified by the quiet and bleak industrial surroundings. Alan took notes as Malcolm scrambled up the sleepers and peered over the edge, then turned back to Alan with a strange look on his face. Is everything all right? asked Alan. You better take a look, replied Malcolm. Alan waited for Malcolm to jump down before making his own way up, then almost fell back, startled by the sight of the man's face, appearing only inches from his own as he looked over the wall. It wasn't the first dead body he'd seen by any stretch, such things being an unfortunate occupational hazard, but this was different. The way the man's eyes seemed to be staring straight up at the sky along with the slightly parted lips, bent into a grimace. It looked for all the world as though he died of fright. Despite the initial shock at seeing the man's face, Alan's professionalism soon kicked in. From then on, things only got stranger. Although the man was wearing a brown suit jacket, Alan quickly noticed there was only a string vest underneath. While there was something odd about the fit of the trousers too, as if they'd been buttoned up in the wrong way. Then he noticed something else unusual. Through the man's short hair, which appeared to have been cut recently in a rough and crude manner, Alan noticed a series of small burn marks, no bigger than a penny, around his crown, and the same type of injury on the side of the man's neck 
while at the nape of the neck there was a small open wound and something viscous smeared over the top of it. Though there was nothing obvious to suggest the man had been murdered, it was odd how clean his clothes were, considering he'd been found on top of a coal heap in the rain, suggesting that at the very least, whether he'd been murdered or not, somebody had put him there. With no sign of rigor mortis either, it was clear that whatever had taken place had happened fairly recently. Alan leant back and took a moment to gather his thoughts, then shouted down to Malcolm to call it in. A short time later, as Alan and Malcolm were cordoning off the area, a Sergeant Neverson and PC Birmingham arrived from the local Criminal Investigation Department, or CID, along with Jack Parker, the owner of the yard, to take a look. They were joined soon after by police surgeon Dr Adshead, who, after a rudimentary assessment, was unable to determine the cause of death, nor was any wallet or forms of ID found on the body. By 5.30pm, another seven police personnel had arrived to inspect the scene, including the divisional head of CID, Detective Chief Inspector Baines. Alan lit another cigarette and watched them all busying themselves, unable to shake the image of the man's terrified face from his mind as the rain continued to fall. By 6.30, the body was finally brought down from the heap and taken to nearby Hebden Bridge for a post-mortem. After taking everything into account, it was concluded that the man had most likely been murdered, but just how exactly would remain to be seen. As dusk fell across the yard and the rain finally eased up, Alan and Malcolm looked for clues as to how the man might have got to the top of the pile. No coal deliveries had been scheduled for the past few days, so there was no chance he'd been dumped accidentally from an unsuspecting truck driver. As for finding a useful footprint amongst all the scuffs and impressions made by the many individuals who'd been on the site that evening, they could scratch that too. In the end, they found only an unfamiliar set of tyre tracks close to the base of the coal heap that Jack Parker, the site's owner, was sure did not belong to any of the vehicles used on site. With little else to go on, however, and with CID now formally taking over the case, at 8pm, Alan and Malcolm called it a night. I share a bed with two Pro Bowl quarterbacks, an Olympic swimmer and a national women's soccer star. I should explain. When I heard how many elite athletes sleep on a Molecule mattress, I ordered one. Molecule is not like any other mattress in a box. Their sleep scientists literally created the world's most perfect mattress. It has six times the airflow of my old mattress, so it keeps me cool all night. It has zone reflex layers that adjust with me in all my weird sleep positions, so I never awaken with a stiff neck or a sore back. And it's antimicrobial. And if Russell Wilson sleeps on a molecule and calls it his best sleep ever, who am I to argue? So I tried it. And Russ, yeah, I call him Russ, was right. Molecule mattress is how elite athletes, and I, get the best sleep ever. Order your Molecule mattress and sleep on it risk-free for 100 nights. If you don't have your deepest, most restorative sleep ever, return it. Go to onmolecule.com and save 20% with promo code UNEXPLAINED. That's O N 
M-O-L-E-C-U-L-E.com. Again, save 20% with promo code unexplained at onmolecule.com. Later that night in Hebden Bridge, Home Office pathologist Dr. Alan Edwards conducted the post-mortem on the body. Despite the initial suspicions, Edwards came to a startling conclusion. The man had died simply of heart failure, most likely due to a combination of emphysema and ischemic heart disease. In other words, he died of natural causes. Edwards determined the man's death to have occurred sometime between 11.15am and 1.15pm that day, suggesting that whatever had happened had occurred at precisely the moment that Trevor Parker was away from the yard. As for the peculiar markings on the man's scalp and neck, Edward suggested they were caused by contact with some kind of destructive liquid, most likely an acid. Interestingly, these injuries were estimated to have been inflicted on June 9th, two days before the man's death. Edwards was less sure about the large wound at the base of the neck. However, a sample of the strange substance found smeared across it was sent to a home office lab in nearby Weatherby for testing. After receiving Dr Edwards' findings, CID decided they were not dealing with a murder investigation after all, believing instead that the man most likely homeless and in an inebriated state, had simply crawled up onto the coal pile and fallen asleep, only to then die there. As a result, CID effectively passed on the case, leaving Alan and Malcolm in their capacity as first responders to the scene with the responsibility of finding the man's identity and informing his next of kin about his death. For the next few days, While ads asking for information were run in the local paper, Alan and Malcolm trawled local pubs and shops armed with images of the mysterious man, asking members of the public if they'd ever seen him before. But no one claimed to know him. It was almost a week later when Alan was sent the profile of a missing persons report whose details tallied closely with those of the unidentified man. The missing person was 56-year-old Zygmunt Jan Adamski, who'd been missing for six days, not from Todmorden, but Tingley, a smaller town located about 20 miles away. And so it was on June 18th that Alan and the detective constable who'd been placed in charge of the case made their way to Adamski's house in Tingley. After arriving at the modest property on Hornfield Crescent, The two police officers were greeted at the door by a concerned-looking young man who promptly invited them inside and ushered them into the living room. Alan and his colleague walked into the living room to find a frail-looking middle-aged woman in a wheelchair with a look of intense worry on her face. The woman introduced herself as Sigmund's wife Leocadia Adamski, but asked them to call her Lottie and invited them to take a seat. Still hoping that the police had made a mistake, it was only when she saw the photos they'd brought of the man in the coal yard that the reality of it all came crashing down on her. Through tears, 
she explained that her husband, Ziggy, as she called him, had gone missing back on Friday, June the 6th, after leaving the house around 3.30pm to fetch some groceries from their local store. His disappearance was completely unfathomable to her, since the store was barely 200 yards away, and they were due to attend the wedding of Zygmunt's goddaughter the next day, something they'd all been looking forward to. When Alan explained where they'd found the body exactly, Lottie was confused, since she was certain that her husband had never even been to Todmorden before. With Lottie unable to escort the police back to Hebden Bridge to formally identify the body, the young man who opened the door for them went with them instead. Later that afternoon, he confirmed the dead man's identity as Zygmunt Adamski. It was strange, though, he said, when going through Adamski's clothes shortly after. He wasn't wearing any of it when he left his house for the last time. His hair was also different, with the man certain that it must have been cut since he'd gone missing. As for the injuries, as the coroner suggested, they had indeed happened some time after he left the house. It was all a little peculiar, to say the least. Later that day, Alan and the detective constable returned to Lottie and Zygmunt's home to see what more they could find out. Both Lottie and Zygmunt arrived in England as refugees from Poland, having fled from the German army's invasion of Poland in 1939. The pair had then met in Leeds and eventually married in 1951. On the day he disappeared, Zygmunt went shopping in the morning with his cousin Lasker, who'd been staying with him and Lottie for the previous couple of months. When they returned, the family sat and ate lunch together, after which Zygmunt left the house, saying he was going to buy some potatoes from the local store, something they needed for the food they were going to prepare for the wedding. As Lottie recalled, it had been a bright sunny day when she saw her husband for the last time, and that he'd taken his wallet with £20 cash and had worn a stripy jacket, none of which was found on him in the coal yard. The couple had been happy, she said, as far as she knew, and her Ziggy a devoted husband. In fact, he'd recently decided to retire from work in order to become her full-time carer, as she suffered from multiple sclerosis. The decision had also been prompted by Zygmunt's own ill health, namely his chronic bronchitis, brought on by 23 years of working as a miner at the nearby Lofthouse Colliery. The mining company had refused his application at first, but eventually agreed to the request after an appeal. Lottie had received the letter confirming their decision two days after her husband went missing. Lottie just couldn't understand what possibly could have happened, telling the officers that her husband was well-liked and respected and had no enemies anywhere, unable to shake the feeling that, despite the fact he died from natural causes, something more sinister had taken place. Alan too had begun to suspect something a little more complicated had occurred. Soon after speaking with Lottie, Alan and the DC made a visit to the local grocery store, where the owner confirmed that Zygmunt had indeed bought potatoes from his shop 
shortly after 3.30pm on the 6th, making him the last known person to see Adamski alive. Back at the station, Malcolm was busy calling round hospitals to see if they had any record of a 56-year-old man fitting Zygmunt's description, being treated for burns or any other injuries, but they had nothing. A few days later, Alan came across some intriguing information. We often talk about how the advent of streaming has revolutionised the way we engage with audio and visual content, placing countless numbers of films, TV shows and music tracks at our fingertips. But did you know this has also been happening for books too? Described as the Netflix for books, Scribd is quite simply the largest digital library in the world and all of it accessible from your favourite device. With Scribd, you get instant access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines and more. As a user myself, Scribd has been invaluable for me as a resource, giving me access to a huge range of sources that have helped inform many of the stories featured on Unexplained. Enjoy instant access to Scribd's entire library for less than the cost of a single book, and discover must-read new work from celebrated authors like Roxane Gay, Charles Yu and more, premiering exclusively on Scribd. Right now, Scribd is offering our listeners a free 60-day trial. Go to scribd.com slash unexplained for your free trial. That's S-C-R-I-B-D dot com slash unexplained to get 60 days of Scribd for free. A man Alan knew that volunteered as a sub-officer at the local fire station who also happened to work at Tomlin's coal yard, told him that he'd visited the yard the day Adamski's body was found, around one o'clock. The man was adamant that there was no body there at that time. Alan quickly realised, if the man's recollection and the coroner's calculations were correct, Adamski must have died before his body made it to the coal yard. In other words, somebody must have put him there. Alan let the revelation eat away at him for a few days before finally compiling a report of his findings, strongly advising CID that they should treat the case as a possible murder. In response, a senior CID officer was sent down from their headquarters in nearby Halifax to discuss the case with him. Their meeting proved to be a very brief one, however, when the man told Alan in no uncertain terms to forget the case and move on. A little put out, but with no choice to accept the man's instructions, Alan did his best to forget it and concentrate on the rest of his many responsibilities. And though he still couldn't quite shake that gruesome image of the terrified look on the man's face, he soon began to put the whole thing behind him. Then in September, something else unusual occurred. It was Malcolm who alerted him to the front page article in the local paper regarding the result of the inquest into Zygmunt Adamski's death. The coroner had returned an open verdict in the case. It was strange because as far as Alan could make out, the decision had been reached without drawing on the vital information he'd uncovered. The full report only seemed to cloud things even further. Wherever Adamski had been in the five days between leaving his house and being found dead, he'd been eating well, 
and was found to have only one day's worth of stubble growth on his face. He was also judged not to have been sleeping rough in that time. No evidence of a stroke or any other brain injury was found that might account for the suffering of temporary amnesia as an explanation as to why he hadn't returned home. Clearly, Zygmunt Adamski, either by his own volition or under duress, had been somewhere. And when you take into account the recent and crudely cut hair, someone had most likely been with him in that time too. Little was added about the peculiar burns, only that it wasn't clear if they'd been inflicted accidentally or not. As for the peculiar liquid found smeared on the wound at the base of the neck, forensic scientists at the Home Office laboratory were unable to identify it. By mid-November, with the nights having long ago closed in and the shadows of the valleys growing darker, the fresh chill of winter had descended. On one especially dark night, two police squad cars made their way into the hills about 10 miles east of Todmorden toward Cold Edge Dams, a small spot of countryside just to the north of Halifax. Their headlights beamed momentarily through the black hedgerows lining the road as they turned in and out of the corners. Inside the first vehicle, WPC Julie Baxter and PC Howard Turnpenny kept their eyes firmly on the road as they drew closer to a local dog kennel where a number of stolen motorbikes were apparently being stored. Meanwhile behind them, PC Porter, travelling with his police dog, suddenly found himself distracted by a peculiar electric blue light hanging in the sky above them. Unable to keep his eyes off it, he couldn't shake the sense that it was following them. After finally arriving at the kennel, Porter jumped out of the car and beckoned his colleagues over to join him. Pointing at the sky, he drew their attention to the strange light, now moving at incredible speed from one side of the valley to the other. And there they stood for the next few minutes, in the quiet darkness, wrestling with what it was exactly they were looking at, until the light turned suddenly, swooped down toward them, and shot off down the valley, heading toward Todmorden. A week later, at just before 10pm on November 28th, down at Todmorden Police Station, Alan, now working the night shift, laced up his standard order Doc Martin boots and stood up to check his uniform in the mirror. Then, after brushing some dust from the shoulder of his jacket and straightening his hat, he headed out to begin his shift. It was the night that would change his life forever. You've been listening to Unexplained Season 6, Episode 2, Valleys of the Uncanny, Part 1. Part 2 will be out next Friday, September 24th. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide.
you can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean smith Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. Do you dream of a healthier life, but education feels out of reach? Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School of Natural Health makes holistic education accessible with online programs to fit your busy schedule. Trinity School's Certified Natural Health Professional Program is the perfect entry point to gain foundational knowledge to empower yourself, your family, and your community to live healthier lives. Turn your passion into a career. Visit trinityschool.org for more info now. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.